Good morning. I am pleased to be with you again today, and we are continuing our journey through our learning a little bit more about Methodism. Last week we talked about Methodist structure and connection. This week we're talking about Wesleyan theology, but I promise not to get too deep. Uh, the scripture passage that we're going to use to um, look at that today is the story of the prodigal son, the parable that we know as the prodigal son. It's kind of long, so I've asked Tyson to help me read it for you. So listen to the word of God from the Gospel of Luke. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So the father divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? And here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of God from the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Amen. My thanks to Tyson and to Lita for helping to lead worship today. Team Sarah steps in again to um, fill the pulpit uh, and, and to be with you in worship. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. 
O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the sermon title, Will and Grace, obviously, is the name of a popular television series from a while ago, although they rebooted it recently. But it also identifies two key aspects of John Wesley's theology, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. Our relationship with God involves two impulses, human will or freedom and God's grace. The parable that we know as the prodigal son illustrates both will and grace. The free will to test boundaries, even reject one's family, and the grace that restores us when we realize what we have lost. The younger son exercises his freedom. He takes the inheritance early and he leaves home. In his culture, claiming your inheritance early is like declaring your father dead. He cuts himself off for good from his family and his community. In, in a sense, he disgraces himself and his family. But the father, what does he do? He lets him go. He even gives him the money that he demands. Today, we might consider the father an enabler of destructive behavior. But he gives the son the freedom to make his own mistakes. We grew up with the Mrs. Pigglewiggle stories. I don't know if any of you know those, those books. Um, Mrs. Pigglewiggle was an eccentric woman who offers parents remedies to break their children of their bad habits. Now, some of them are magical cures, powders or potions that correct the problem. But most of the time, she offers the parents the same very practical suggestion. Let the children do what they want without any parental restrictions. They don't want to go to bed? Fine, says Mrs. Pigglewiggle. Let them stay up as late as they want. Within a few days, the children are so exhausted they are begging to go to bed. Don't want to pick up their toys? Fine, they can just leave them on the floor. And pretty soon the children can't get out the door of their rooms and the parents are feeding them vegetable soup through the windows with the broth coming through a hose and the vegetables on the tines of a rake. Don't want to take a bath? Fine, let them get as dirty as they like. And when the layer of dirt on their skin becomes deep enough, the parents plant radish seeds while they're sleeping. And when the seeds sprout a few days later, the children freak out and beg for a bath. That was one of my favorite cures. Mrs. Pigglewiggle is a firm believing believer in letting children exercise their freedom. But there's a little more at stake for the younger son in this parable than for the children in the Mrs. Pigglewiggle stories. But the father demonstrates the same wisdom. He lets the son make his own mistakes, despite the cost to them both. The father allows the son to bear the consequences of his reckless living. He even hands over his inheritance in a huge lump sum. He basically gives him the keys to a luxury car and then watches him drive it to destruction. Well, the younger son finally recognizes his mistake, but only after he has hit rock bottom. He's reduced to slopping pigs and then even coveting the slop that the pigs are eating. He's fallen lower than an animal that his religion deems as unclean. He realizes that he has screwed up big time. He understands the consequences of his actions. He comes to his senses. Literally, the, the scripture says he comes to himself. He's burned a lot, of, a lot of bridges when he asked for his inheritance early. But nevertheless, he decides to go home. Specifically, the text says he goes to his father. That's the relationship that he needs to mend. He realizes he is no longer worthy to even be part of the family. 
but his father's servants have it better than he does at this point. Not knowing how the father will greet him, he nevertheless returns to his father, who would be justified in sending him packing. The son takes a huge risk in returning home, but he has realized what he lost. He needs to utter those three little words that every parent longs to hear their children say, I was wrong. The son cannot expect to be restored to his family, but he can confess his sin, seek his father's forgiveness, and ask for work as a servant in the household. But while he is still far off, the father sees him, runs to him, and embraces him. He doesn't know what the son wants. He could be back to ask for another handout. In fact, nothing in his history would lead the father to, to expect anything else. But still, he runs to meet him, hugs and kisses his son before the young man can say a word. The father's been waiting for this day, looking down the road whenever he's out, hoping against hope that he'll see this wandering one. And finally, when he sees this son in the distance, he cannot wait any longer, and he runs to meet him. Well, the son begins his rehearsed speech, but the father cuts him off mid-confession. He is so overjoyed that his son has returned. He restores him to the family, dresses him in fine robes and rings and sandals. He calls for his feast. Such a special occasion, he kills the fatted calf. The son has gone from coveting the pig's swill to dining on the finest beef fattened up just for a special occasion. This lavish banquet is a sign public sign, sign for everyone, of the father's forgiveness. The son who was given up for dead is alive again. The very son who severed the relationship is restored to the fold. The son is shown mercy where it, he expected and even deserved wrath. He is fed, forgiven, and freed in one magnanimous gesture with an outpouring love that is sheer grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved grace. For John Wesley, grace is everything. Grace undergirds every moment of our lives, as Lita read about this parental love that goes with a child everywhere. So God's love and grace goes every minute of our lives. For Wesley, even our free will is a product of God's grace. God loves us enough to let us try things our way, but never quit surrounding us with love and enticing us into the way that leads to holiness. Now, I've got a slide. Jen, if you want to put that slide up. There we go. Um, oh, the words aren't too big, but I'll talk you through it. This was from my Wesleyan theology class, uh, the diagram of Wesley's grace, and it's so helpful that I thought we'd, we'd give it a try. Wesley believes in three forms of grace. First is prevenient grace, and that's the part on the horizontal line over to the left. This is um, the grace that goes before. This is divine love that surrounds us from the moment that we're born, draws us onto the right paths, saving us from ourselves despite our fallen state. But at a certain point, the second form of grace, justifying, and this is the downward error, at pointing at, at the point of life where we accept salvation for ourselves, and even that is enabled by God's justifying grace. Protestants believe in salvation, by grace, through faith. So God enables us to respond to this divine grace in our lives uh, by, by accepting that, by responding with our own faith. 
the two books for my Methodist theology class were Responsible Grace and Grace and Responsibility. Wesley believed that a human response is necessary. We have to accept salvation by having faith. Yet even that response, as we see there, is, is um, enabled by grace. From that point on, we have that third kind of grace, which is sanctifying grace, which is the arrow uh, continuing on the horizontal for the rest of our life. Wesley did not believe that salvation was one and done, but living on a path of increasing holiness moving through God's grace ever closer to perfection. Grace has been working on this younger son in the parable throughout his life, going before him, leading him to accept his father's unmerited love, and continuing with him as he seeks to change his ways. But of course there's another son in the story. The older son who does not reject his father, who serves his father well and is pretty upset that he doesn't get a party. This son believes in merit. He believes you have to earn love, that you can't get it for free. This big party, this should be for the son who spends his days sweating in the field, not for the ingrate who abandoned home and family and duty. Now, many of us, myself included, would have to confess that we identify with this son. We live in a transactional society. You have to pay your dues. You don't expect anything for free. If it sounds too good, our first question is, what's the catch? But that's what's so amazing about God's grace. There is no way any of us could earn such a gift. And yet it surrounds us every day of our lives. There is no catch. The older son hasn't strayed from the path, so he has not experienced the extent, the depth of that un merited grace. He is in constant relationship with his father. I was in high school in the 70s when the evangelical movement kind of took off, and so several of my friends were saved. Well, I couldn't name the date and hour of my conversion, so they thought I wasn't saved, and I began to believe it myself. But I came to realize that I was saved the day I was born into a Christian family, my parents modeled faith every day. My church family was like a second home for me. When asked if I was saved, I began to answer that I was never lost. I was blessed that others nurtured me in the faith, and I accepted that faith without straying very far, all of which was enabled by God's grace, not by anything my family or I did to earn it. The older son, though, fails to notice that blessing of his unbroken relationship with his father. He never exercised his free will in a way that separated him from the father. So he never experienced a love that was unexpected and even undeserved. He seems to think his loyalty and hard work have earned him an extra measure of his father's love. But the father loves him no more or less than the son who strayed. And that just doesn't feel right to this older son. My parents had a plaque in the kitchen as we were growing up that said, there are two lasting bequests you can give your children. One is roots and the other is wings. The father in this story gives both of these gifts to his sons. One stayed ro stays rooted, drawing on grace, nurtured by it every day, even if he's unaware of it. The other uses his wings to fly far away, and then realizing what he has lost, returns and is restored to the family. 
God allows us the free will to make bad choices. We may cut ourselves off entirely from God, but God remains waiting with open arms, ready to welcome us back, continuing to pour grace upon us, prevenient grace, drawing us back, which is the greatest gift that a parent can give to their children. Thanks be to God. Amen.